0: Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to another edition of Church at Its Worst I have to say, I'm studying church history this semester in my online seminary, and uh, I'm not sure this is church at its worst, given some of the things we've read about in the first thousand years, but it is certainly instructive for us. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are going to finish chapter 7 today, which is great news, and the more great news, I don't have to do a public service announcement. We're, we're back into the, the, the PG and, and G-rated sermon, so... Turn in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 25. We're just picking right up from where we left off last week. And I'm going to read down through verse 40, the end of the chapter. Now, I'm reading from the NIV. That's going to be significant, as you'll see in a minute. If you're following along in another version, there may be some serious differences. But follow along with me as I read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 25. Now, about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but she must, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Now, this is one of those passages That drives preachers like me crazy. Like I'm sure you you know you recognize that I have a particular style and I preach a certain way. And if you have had other preachers or other pastors, then you've heard other styles. I do what's called expository preaching. And what expository preaching means is you take a section of scripture and you work through it to find out what was the author's main point. And that's what you preach. So I am always going through these passages. So in this case, Paul wrote this letter. I'm trying to figure out what did Paul mean? What was Paul's point? What was he trying to communicate to the Corinthians? And then from that, we make application to our own selves today. Um, This passage makes it very hard to do that. And as I'm going along, do you notice that one of the things I'm doing while preaching is I'm often trying to show you what I do. Like, what I do isn't magic. It it doesn't take a a ton of skill. You don't have to be particularly smart. You just have to read carefully. You have to pay attention. You, You may have to go get some outside resources. If you notice, normally I read a passage, and then I go back up to the top, and I go back through it with you, and I point things out to you, and I ask you questions, right? Do you notice how many times this word is repeated? Do you see here, look, Paul says we should be like this. Well, what does that mean? What has he told us about being like this? Oh, look, it's up in this passage, right? I try and sort of connect the dots for you the way I have connected them. I just go right back to the passage with you. I want you to see what I'm doing so that you can do this too. And you've heard me say many times that the most important thing to understanding what an author is saying is context. It's kind of like real estate. In real estate, the most important thing is location. It's the same when you study the Bible. Location is what's most important. We call location context, but it's location in the... Where is this passage in the book? It's location. It's context in the book. What did the author say before? What does the author say afterwards? It's location in all the Bible. Where does it stand in what God has revealed to his people? It's location in history. You know, the Bible was written by... Particular people at particular times, in certain circumstances. Like, what are those? Knowing those helps us understand what the author meant. And this passage drives people like me who preach like I do nuts because we have no context. We're in this section where Paul is answering questions. And if you'll notice, he now answers another question. But this is all he tells us about their question. Now, about virgins or as i said if you have a different translation that might be a very different word it might if you have the esv i think it says now about the betrothed other translations will say now about the young women or it will say now about those who are engaged or there's just lots of different things it will say what paul literally says is now about the unmarried teenage girls the word he uses there that we the niv's translating virgin it means an unmarried Teenager. If it's in the masculine, it means an unmarried teenage boy. In this case, it's in the feminine, so it's an unmarried teenage girl. Now, the idea, the assumption is, if she's just a teenager, she's not married yet. She's never slept with anyone. Hence, we call it a virgin. But it just means the unmarried teenage girls. And then he launches in to something where he doesn't talk to the unmarried teenage girls or about the unmarried teenage girls. He talks to a bunch of guys about something else. We don't know what their question was. And I've told you before how significant that is. If you remember last week, I talked about the example of you and I are talking and and suddenly I stop and I say to one of my sons, hey, son, about the car, get the biggest you can. Now, what was I talking about? We naturally assume that if I say about the car, then I must be answering the broadest possible question. I must be talking about what car to get. About the car, get the biggest possible. But as I said last week, That might not be it at all. Maybe my son said to me, hey, dad, I just bought this Jeep. It comes with 120 tires. Dealer says I should put 150s on it, but those are more expensive. Should I do it? And I say to him, son, about the car, get the biggest possible. Now, am I saying that you should buy the biggest car you can? Heavens no, I'm saying for that car, that Jeep he's already bought, you should get the biggest tires you could put on it. Not knowing the question makes this so difficult to understand what he is talking about. But we will read it super broadly now about the unmarried teenage girls. And we kind of just naturally assume that what they wrote him was, oh, Paul, tell us about unmarried teenage girls. But I'm pretty confident that is not what they asked him. Like they asked him a specific question. But without knowing that, there's so many things Paul says in here that Clearly, they're talking about something they've already discussed because they're leaving out tons of words. Remember, this is the third letter in a correspondence. He wrote them, they wrote him, now he's writing them again. You know, have you ever written an email to somebody and then they respond to you and then you respond to them and then they respond to you and so it stacks up and you want someone else to give you an opinion and so you forward the whole chain onto someone and you say, hey, just start from the bottom. Right? You'll read my first email, their response, my second email, their second response. Right? You'll have the whole chain. You'll understand what I'm talking about. If all they have is this person's second response, they don't know what's going on. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. So look at what Paul says in verse 26. Because of the present crisis. What crisis? <laughs> I mean, what crisis is he talking about? Presumably they know because he doesn't specify it. But we don't know. And what he literally says is even worse. He literally says, because of the compulsion standing here. What compulsion? And standing here could mean present now. It could also mean it's, it's coming, it's, it's close, it's, it's approaching. So again, if you have another translation, it may say something wildly different. It may talk about future something, or it may talk about distress. It may talk about trouble. It may talk about a constraint, a necessity, a compulsion. We don't know what he's talking about. So we tend to do it as broadly as possible. Oh, what's the present crisis? Well, that must be you know like something really bad, really big. He goes on to say down in verse 29, brothers and sisters, what I mean is the time is short. What time, time for what? We don't know, they knew presumably, but we don't. So we do it as big as possible. Oh, the time, all time, this must be the end of the world all time is short. Paul goes on and he says in verse 31, this world in its present form is passing away, or literally the appearance of this world is passing away. And again, we have no clue what he's talking about. So we take it as broad as possible. Oh, this must be the end of the world, right? So how we often read this is that what Paul is basically saying to these people is, hey, Jesus is coming back soon. Don't bother getting married. You don't need to. Now I am absolutely convinced that is not what Paul is saying to them. They did not ask him, hey Paul, should our daughters get married? Like just you know, broad as possible. And his answer is, oh no, Jesus is coming back. I mean, just a couple of years before he wrote this letter, he wrote the Thessalonians in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And they're actually doing that. Like we know that. It's in it's in the letter. They think Jesus is coming back in the next couple of months. So they've all quit their jobs and they're just going to church every day because they want to be in church when the sky splits open and Jesus comes down and we all, you know, rise into the air that they want to be together in church. So no one's working. And Paul doesn't write them and say, hey, yes, Jesus is coming back right away. Good job. He writes them and says, get off your butts, you lazy bums. You need to be working. You need to be providing for your family. You need to be paying your bills. You need extra money so you could give to people in need. Don't just sit there in church all day. Get back to work. I'm confident Paul is not saying to these people, oh yeah, this is is the end of the world. Jesus is coming back any moment now. You don't need to bother getting married. So what's the present crisis? What's the time is short? What's the appearance of the world that's passing away? We don't know. Well, like there's some things in history it might be. Paul's writing around 55 AD. Emperor Claudius, the emperor of the Roman Empire, he died in 54 AD and he was succeeded by his adopted son, Nero. Claudius took the throne in his early 50s and he ruled for about 13, 14 years, died in his mid 60s. And he was a really good emperor. Like he's, you know, he's listed up there in the top 20, top 10 of the emperors in the Roman empire. He did a great job. He got the empire when it was in terrible shape from the guy before him. And he, he put it all back together. Like it was good to be in the Roman empire under his rule. He's replaced by Nero. You've probably heard of Nero, right? He is not in the top list of emperors. He's in the bottom five of all time of the worst emperors. And Claudius didn't really care about the Christians, but Nero Oh, Nero goes after them. Thousands and thousands of people will die under Nero's persecution. Maybe that's what Paul's saying. Maybe that's the coming crisis. Maybe the time is short. Paul knows there's gonna be massive persecution coming and that's what he's writing about. Well, we know there was a famine in the Roman Empire in the mid 50s. We know in 55 AD that Corinth is under grain rationing. Like you can't just buy and sell grain on your own. The government's taking it over. Maybe that's the crisis Paul's talking about or the compulsion. You're being compelled to buy grain from the government or you're being compelled to sell to the government. We don't know. I wanna read you something. (laughs) This is two sentences from one of the commentaries that I read. I mean, I read a dozen commentaries on this, maybe more, right? Like trying to work through, what do we know about what's going on here? But listen to what this guy says, two sentences. "...as George Card has argued with force, eschatological imagery is capable of multiple applications which are often employed in the New Testament with the logic of metaphor. Therefore, Lightfoot's identification of the compulsion with persecution and Winter's allusion to famine may well represent concrete instantiations of the eschatological principle identified by Schweitzer." namely that believers do not march directly from their natural condition to resurrection without in some sense also sharing in the afflictions, constraints, and difficulties, which is in a secondary reflective way. They are signs that their sharing in Christ's resurrection is inseparable from their sharing in some sense in the cross. Well, there it is, right? What's Paul talking about? Oh, he's making a concrete instantiation of an eschatological principle. I mean, I'll pray. We'll sing a couple more songs. And then, hey, if you're watching this Sunday morning, you're going to beat the Baptist to the lunch buffet today. So good for you. If you ever wonder what I do, right? You'd like to so like, what exactly does he do? I mean, I know he's there on Sundays, but what about the rest of the week? Like normal people, this is two sentences in a commentary. I'm reading thousands of sentences each week to try and pull out the good stuff. What is it that helps us we don't know. The commentaries don't know. We, we, we can't make heads or tails out of these things that Paul is referencing. One of the commentators, after doing all this stuff, right, he goes through all these things. Um, and then he says at one point, you know, we might just have to admit that Paul might be thinking out loud here because maybe he is. He, we know he's dictating his letters, maybe you know he says god hasn't told me like a command about this here's my opinion and so he you know maybe he's just talking out loud like it's really hard to translate if again if you've got another translation it may be wildly different in some places one of the commentaries takes verse 35 which says i'm saying this for your own good not to restrict you but that you may live in a right way and undivided devotion to the lord Uh, and they translate that seven different ways They're like, here are seven different possible ways that this could honestly be translated that means seven different things, right? Because we don't know what's going on. It makes it so hard to make good application, to do what I want to do, to take the main point of the scripture and and to present that to you, to show you how I got that. So then we make application. Here's what God is saying to us. Here's what Paul said to the Corinthians. Here's what God is saying to us through this. So, So what do we do? Like, again, I'm trying to teach you what I do, right? What do we do when we get in these situations where we just don't understand? There's places like this in the scripture. We don't get it. We, We don't get what's going on. We don't understand the context. What we do is we try and make broad, broad, general application. We don't want to just say, oh, well, what's the broadest question we can ask? Let's assume that's it. What's the broadest possible thing he could mean? Let's assume that. He might not. When he says about the unmarried teenage girls, you know, they might've written him, hey, do you remember Amanda and Chris's children, Lucy and Susan? They asked me a question the other day about marriage and I couldn't answer it. So here, I'm gonna tell you and you tell me, right? And so when Paul says now about the, the, the unmarried teenage girls, right, he's talking about Lucy and Susan, these two girls that asked him a question. We don't know. So we try and make application that is broad enough that it covers all the bases. Like whatever the situation was, whether the question was super narrow, right? These two girls asked a question or it's super broad. Should our daughters get married at all? That we know we're confident that that Paul is saying that, that whatever our application is, it's true to whatever the context of the text might have been. So what I think in that vein, what are some general principles that we can pull out of this that I am absolutely confident that Paul would affirm, that would be true, as true for us today as it was for him? And the first one is singleness. Like Paul has said already, you know, for us it's like, you know, two weeks ago or something, but but for him it's just two minutes ago. He's just dictating this letter. Paul has said it's okay to be single, right? Which I told you is just a remarkable thing to say. Like, Like singleness wasn't like frowned on. It wasn't wrong. It was illegal. Um, y- y- no one was single for very long. That was, that was bad. It was, it, w- it was evil. You were not contributing to society. You were not contributing to your family. It's the wrong thing to do. And Paul has said up above, just you know, a couple paragraphs before this, oh no, it's fine to be single. You can live a full life being single. Paul says, I, I do. I'm single. It'd be great if you were like me. This is no problem at all. Well, here he begins to talk about why is that? How can he possibly say, Oh, I'd love it if you all were single? That'd be great. When no one in his world would ever say that. So I know most of the people watching me are probably married because we're a family church. You know, we've got tons of couples, tons of families. Praise God. We've got couples and families, you know, in their early 20s all the way up into their 80s. But lots of you watching me right now are couples. But not all of you, some of you are single. Some of you are single because you are young teenage girls or young teenage boys. You're unmarried teenagers. Some of you are single because you're divorced. Some of you are single because you're, you're widowed. You're a widow or a widower. Like, like There are some single people I know who are listening to me. So hey, finally, a sermon for you, right? How aren't you tired of all the applications about marriages and, and things like that? And all we've been talking about marriage over the last several weeks. Like one thing I'm, absolutely confident that Paul means, no matter what the question was they asked him, is he affirms the value, the benefits of singleness. This culture would have said, no, absolutely not. And Paul says, oh no, absolutely. Being single, not being married, not having a spouse and a family, there are benefits to that. Now, notice, he doesn't say the benefits that we would say. Right? Our culture would not agree with this culture, the Bible's culture, the Greco-Roman culture that says, you must be married. Like it's a moral imperative. It's the law. You must be married. We would not agree with that at all. If you're not married, our, our culture would say, oh, that's great. You do you. You want to be married, don't be married. <laughs> but the reasons we would say that, the advantages we would give would be effectively selfish ones. We would say the advantage of being single is you can do whatever you want. You don't have a spouse. You don't have children. You want to go to Aruba for vacation next week? Go. Go. You want to take a new job across the country? Go. You don't have to you know, talk to your spouse. You don't have to figure out schools for your kids. If you want to take a new job, you don't have to worry about whether your spouse can get a job there. Like, like, there's no compromise if you're single. Our world says singleness is good because it allows you to be even more selfish. Notice what Paul says. Singleness is good because it allows you to be particularly devoted to God. Paul says that the advantage of singleness is unselfishness. It's the exact opposite of what our world would say. This world would say, it's your duty. And our world would say, no, be selfish. And Paul will say, be single so you can be unselfish. And notice who he directs that to. Like he's very careful. He directs that to men. He directs that to women. He directs that to what he says, the virgin, but again, literally unmarried teenage girls. If you are single right now, because you are young, because you're a teenager, you haven't gotten married yet, um, you have the gift of singleness at that moment. Because remember what Paul said earlier, it's a gift. You have one of, there's two gifts. One man has this gift. The other man has this gift. There's a gift of singleness that God gives, that Paul elaborates all these things that you can do with that, that are really good. And there's a gift of marriage. And that's also really good. But there are two different gifts. If you're single then, for this moment at least, you have the gift of singleness from God. And it allows you to be unselfish. It allows you to be devoted in ways that you can't be when you're married. Now, Paul has to walk a fine, fine line here. You know, do you notice how often he goes back and forth in this passage between, hey, if you want to get married it's fine but if you don't want to get married that's fine too hey if you decide to get married you've done the right thing but if you decide not to get married you've done the right thing hey if you get married that's that's good hey if you don't get married that's even better right he's constantly having to go back and forth because this culture would say oh you need to be married and remember the Corinthian church is very divided it's a divisive church it it, it breaks apart on all sorts of things and so i've said i feel like in many cases paul is having to sort of tiptoe his way through these things and not just come out and tell people flat out, hey, no, you're wrong. This is the way it is. And I sort of feel like he's doing that again. He's just this back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Of, Oh no, marriage is great. Absolutely. But singleness is great too. If you're single, you have opportunities now that you won't have or you didn't have if you were married and you won't have if you get married again. It's not to say you have the gift of singleness from God for the rest of your life, although you may. We don't know. That's up to him. That's his decision. You're his servant. But if you you are single right now, then you have the gift of singleness from God. That's worth something, Paul says. You should investigate that. You should be talking to God. Are, Are there any of these things that it says here that he wants you to be involved in? Are there ways he wants you to be devoted that a married person never could? Are there ways he wants you to be undivided, unselfish in ways that a married person, or you, if you become married, that you never, ever could. If you are not married, you should pray into this. You should be talking to God about this. What Paul says, again, I'm confident that I can, whatever the question is, I'm confident Paul would agree with this. Don't be in a hurry to get married. Like if God's gonna do that, he will. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get married. Like Paul says that like four times. Nothing wrong with wanting to get married, nothing wrong with deciding to get married, nothing wrong with getting married. There's nothing wrong with that but it's also good that you're not married. If you're not married now, remember we talked about last week, wherever you are, whatever your situation, you're there for a reason. The Lord has a plan in that. You can obey him and be content in that. And you can obey God and be content in your singleness. Even if you do decide that you want to be married, even if you do desire that for now, for this time, how does God want to use your singleness? How does God want to use that gift of singleness that he's given you? At least until a time that perhaps he gives you the gift of marriage. If you're single, like don't scoot over that. D- don't make that just a waiting until you get married time. It is a time when you can be particularly effective, Paul seems to be saying, in ministry. Even if you're an unmarried teenage girl. Like He specifically says that. If you are an unmarried teenage girl then you can be undivided and devoted to God. You should absolutely be thinking and praying about that. And again, if you want to get married, absolutely, Paul says, get married. But one caveat at the end in verse 39, a woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. Remember, the church is only five years old right? Pretty much anybody got married, they were married before they were Christians. And we talked about that last week. If a Christian's married to a non-Christian, Paul's like, absolutely. If they'll stay, stay. Don't don't get divorced. God doesn't want that. She's bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. And and that is taught other places in scripture. If you are a Christian, you can only marry a Christian. You cannot marry a non-Christian. It is forbidden you must marry a Christian. Now, if you are already married to a non-Christian, that is okay, Paul says. That's fine. It's even good. Stay if you can. If you can't, right? right, There's no shame in that. There's no condemnation on you in that if your non-Christian spouse won't live with you as a Christian. But if they will, do. But here, if you are getting married, do not marry an unbeliever. You may not do that. And I will say from having been in college ministry and watching people do that, nothing good comes of it. Nothing good comes of believers marrying unbelievers. What you see over and over again is heartache and heartbreak and backsliding. And Paul knows that. And I think that's why he sticks this here at the end. He wants to make sure that we all get that. This is his last word. Do not marry a non-Christian. So that's the first thing that I'm, I'm confident is broad enough in this passage. I am confident that Paul would agree that absolutely. Paul says, I'm single. It'd be great if you're single. I, I live a full and contented life. I serve God un, you know, de- devotedly, undividedly. Absolutely, Paul says, come and join me. If you're single, yeah, pray into that. Think about it. What does God want you to be doing with your, your gift of singleness? And here's the other thing I want to say. And, and this one, is, I, I admit, is a little more tenuous if you are reading an older translation, so I'm reading the NIV from 211. If you're reading a translation from, say, 50 years ago, if you're reading the earlier NIV, the 1984 NIV, um, you will notice that some of this is very different. In fact, if you have a modern NIV and you look down at the footnotes, there's a huge footnote about an alternate way to translate this. Throughout most of church history, the church has understood this passage not to be talking to men who are engaged, to women, which is kind of what this one seems like, but to parents. That Paul is speaking to parents of young girls who are engaged, and he's telling them what to do. That's why you get these weird things in translation where there's Paul talks about you and he, and the way this translation works right now, if you think that this is two men who are engaged, then you and he are the same thing which is weird, and the pronouns seem to shift at times. And, but if the you is the parents and the he is this kid that might become your son-in-law, things make a lot more sense. Now, there's good reasons to read it that way, and there's good reasons to read it the way that the NIV translates it into 11. But remember, in 1984, they thought it should go the other way. But I do think Paul is writing this to parents, and I do think that is something worth thinking about. Because just as I've said to the singles... Right? That that God has something for you right now in your singleness. Don't miss it. Parents, we have hopes and dreams for our kids, don't we? Like we have expectations, things that we want for them. And I think what most of us want as parents is we want our kids to marry and settle down and have children, have a good job and a good home, and get us some grandkids. That's what we want for our kids. And we're not going to be happy if our daughter comes to us and says, you know, I think the Lord wants me to be single and be a missionary. I think the Lord wants me to, to leave and stay single. Never to have children, never to have a husband. That, I think, will be hard for many of us as parents. And I think one of the things Paul is saying to parents. Now again, he might not be speaking to parents, right? This is more word of Jeff, but I still believe that it is true, that that's what he's doing. That's the best way to translate it. What Paul is saying to parents is, no, no. If your kids don't want to get married, that's good. They can be devoted to God in ways they'll never be able to be devoted to him when they are married, if they do get married. That's good. Don't stop it. Like, yes, if if your daughter decides to get married, that's great. Support it. But if she decides not to, you support that as well. And parents, I think that would be hard for many of us. When I was in Singapore, um, uh, we were a church of about 75 people. Um, It was all Chinese except for us. And there were a lot of college students for this smaller church. It was pretty cool. And so I'd been in college ministry. I started a college group. We met on Saturday nights and I'd get together with these college kids and some of the, the, the upper level high school kids would come along. I mean, we, we had a bunch a of 15, 20 kids doing this um, and the parents loved it, right? The parents of these, these high school students and college students, they thought this was great. Their kids were getting fellowship. Their kids were getting teaching. Their kids were, were getting to be, I mean, they were getting a missionary teaching them, someone from another culture. The parents loved it right up until the moment when some of those kids started thinking about becoming missionaries because they were hearing my stories. They were hearing me talk about missions. And when they came to me and, and said, hey, tell me more about this, of course I was enthusiastic. I was trying to recruit them. And their parents didn't like that because that wasn't the dream their parents had for them. Their parents, their parents were Christians, solid Christians, their parents were in the church. But their dream for their kids was not get a college degree stay single, go be a missionary in China, translate the Bible. Their dream for their kid was get a good job, get married, get me grandkids, take care of me when I get older. Like they loved it. They loved what I was doing right up until their kids started having dreams that they didn't have. Parents, if your kids desire to be wholly devoted to God, even if that means they never marry even if that means they never have a spouse, they never have a family, you need to support that. Because Paul thinks that's a really good thing. Like Paul says, again, you're welcome to be married. But he goes so far as to say, in some cases, unmarried is better. That will be hard, parents. That'll be hard for me. I am sure that will be hard for you. But you need to do that. Because what we want to have happen in our kids' lives is that they follow Jesus. If what you want for your child is a good job, a good marriage, family, kids, success, if you want that more than you want them to follow hard after Jesus, then you need to search your own heart because that's not what God wants. God wants your kids to follow after him. And if his call on their life is singleness, you need to support that. If their call on his life is the gift of singleness for a period of time or for their whole lives as parents, We must support them in that. I think that's also what Paul is saying. So let's close in prayer. I'm gonna pray over this. And I get for lots of you, right? You, you are married and you do have kids and whatever else and, and this isn't applicable. So you pray for those that it is applicable. Pray for the singles you know. Pray for the parents you know that have kids that are single, that that, that, that this might be a problem for them. Let's pray into this and ask God's spirit to speak us to us and to illuminate it. Especially as, as I said, this passage is Pretty difficult to be confident in exactly what it says. So pray with me. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the gift of singleness. Thank you that that there is this passage, which I readily admit, there's lots of it I'm not sure about. But I am absolutely sure that that Paul is extolling the virtues of being single, virtues that he himself had. He he was single. He tells us that. His singleness allowed him to do things he could never do if he had a family. Uh, Lord, I pray for everyone who's listening to this who is single right now, uh, single by choice or maybe single because it has been forced upon them. Uh, I pray for everyone who's listening to me who isn't married. Maybe they have been, maybe they, they never have been. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them. What, what do you have for them in their singleness? What do you want them to be doing as they are single? Even if, as Paul says, they are unmarried teenage girls. What do you want them to be doing with the gift of singleness that you have given them, perhaps just for this time. Holy Spirit, speak to them. And Jesus, speak to us as parents. Help us to truly believe that the best thing for our kids is not a good job, it's not a successful career, it's not possessions, it's not a house, it's not a spouse, it's not kids, it's not even happiness. The best thing for our kids is that they follow hard after you. The best thing for our kids is that they be called great in your kingdom. Even if that means they never have all the things that make people great in this world. Lord, help us. You know we love our kids. You know we want what we think is the best for them. And we're so tied to this world. We think the things of this world are best. Help us, Jesus. Help us to embrace and encourage our children. If you call them into ministry like this, if you call them into a ministry of singleness, And Jesus, we pray this in your name because we need you to do this. So in your name, Jesus, we love you and we're yours. Amen.